You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Connie Jewell walked out of the kitchen and into the small dining room where her family and a couple of tonight strays from the neighborhood, the boys' pals Steve and Razdip, were making an ungodly racket at the table. As far as she could tell, her two boys and Steve were arguing about, what else, football, and Devin and the two other kids were taking it to the mat about whether Glee was better than Friday Night Lights, as if, in Connie's opinion, there could even be any discussion about the matter. It was glorious, she thought, all this noise. There wasn't an ounce of shyness in Devon or in any members of the family they'd made together, and the, kid, and the friends her kids brought home mostly seemed to fit that mold as well. So it was always loud in their house, and she loved it. Connie had grown up in a family of academics, where if NPR got left on so that you could even hear a whisper of it in the next room, someone would be dispatched to go in and please turn the darn thing down. The first time Devon had picked her up at her parents' home, now a million years ago, He'd honked his horn from the street several times, and that had just about done it in terms of winning her heart. When she'd opened the door, he'd howled from the car in excited greeting, and she'd howled back, ignoring her parents' patent disapproval, and that, it had seemed, was that. Now she carried a large ceramic platter onto which she'd piled his favorite meal, spaghetti in the middle with a circle of her famous homemade meatballs around it. They were already well into the garlic bread. Devin, she noticed, had popped the two-buck chuck and already had filled her glass. First things first. John Lasquois is the author of 22 novels. These include the Dismiss Hardy novels, which began with Dead Irish in 1989. The latest in the series is Damage. In The Hunt Club, we meet Devin Jewell and Wyatt Hunt in his San Francisco milieu. His newest novel featuring Jewell and Hunt is The Hunter. Thank you for joining me, John. It's a great pleasure to be here. John, I I think this latest novel exemplifies for me. It's a sterling example of all that makes American mystery such a great literary genre. Great. You have a a fantastic sense of place. You have a great in-depth characterization. There's a a wonderful sense, historic backdrop to this novel. Mm -hmm. And there's a a beautiful, clean prose. And, And I think that these things all really point to the fact that mystery is, I think, more has leapt out of genre and become an interesting and vital literary American form. I think many of the best people working writing in today's world are are writing in this genre or the thriller genre in general. But I really think mysteries, you know, they've always been well written. I mean, even back in the Conan Doyle days, he was a literary writer as well as, you know, the Sherlock Holmes inventor. And, you know, there used to be this kind of stigma that, well, you, you wrote too, you know, you wrote too well to, uh, to be popular. And now I think that's gone. So it's a great time to be a mystery writer. Now, uh, one of the things I think that is so interesting uh, about this book is that we get to this character whom we've known for, th- from your previous novels, we get to know really in depth. And I'm wondering what made you decide to do that in this novel? You know, when I first conceived of the character, I knew I wanted to have a character who was younger, because Wyatt, Wyatt is much younger than Dismas Hardy and much younger than Abe Glitzky, my characters from my other series. I wanted to have a, a character who would appeal to younger readers and who would be a little more uh, just fun to write about, who did physical things, whereas you know mo- most of my Glitzky-Hardy books are very internal, cerebral. Um, so... 
I had two books with Wyatt, and I, I liked him. He was really a fun guy to write about. But I started to miss the depth. And fortunately, what I had done when I first conceived of him was thought about him. I, I made him a, an adopted child who'd been in the foster system. And that's pretty much all I said about it, which left a gaping hole, basically, in his history. And I figured that would be a good way to access both his history and his, the depth of his character if I could explore what happened back in the, the day of his foster childhood. Now, uh, when we, one of the things I think that also gets us into this book right away is this crisp, clear prose, this scene with uh, Devin Jewell, the cop, and, and Wyatt, the, the investigator. So I'd like you to just talk about setting that up and sucking us in so quickly into the, the, the characters in the series because it really, those kind of archetypal images uh, mm-hmm. grab us. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I've taken a lot of lessons from other writers in the business. And, and in this particular opening scene, I borrowed, I hope, uh, successfully from Elmore Leonard, who often starts, you know, in the middle of things. And I just, I've never even written a book before that kind of didn't have a set up first sentence. Mm-hmm. But this was just like I was already telling the story and you just come into it right in the middle. And these people are talking. And, you know, there's that old cliche of show, don't tell. And the greatest thing about conversation is it's all showing. And so you're right with them and you get to know them and you're, you're in on their conversation without any explanation. And it's fan- I think it's fantastic. It's a great way to identify with these folks. Now, uh, as a mystery, uh, one of the things about the mystery genre that's interesting is that it partakes of what's going on in the day. Mm-hmm. And you do something really great here. This is, I think, the first text-based mystery. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I did that on purpose. Uh, w- you know, my, my agent and I really did talk a lot about the plan for this book when I was starting to think about Wyatt and uh, the search for his parents. I didn't exactly know how I was going to get into the search for his parents. And my agent, who's great, his name is Barney Carpfinger in New York, he said, well, you know, there's so much uh, why it's younger and you're going for a kind of a younger audience. Why don't you consider doing something with technology? And that's like saying to me, you know, why don't I water ski backwards? I mean, I just can't do that. And I'm not a tech guy at all. And, you know, I, I even in terms of can you get a text from someone you don't know was not known to me before I started writing this book. So I started to my, ask my 20-year-old, 21-year-old son if you could do that. And he's, of course, like every other 20-year-old, completely hardwired to get it. And he, he told me a bunch of things. And I said, wow, that could be pretty cool. And then I talked to a tremendous AT&T guy uh, who's just at the local store in, in Davis where I live. And R.J. Reynolds turned out to be just an amazing source because he had actually done security work for AT&T. He, would, he had been a major supervisor. He had moved all around the company. And he, to- he got me into this whole tech thing in a big way. And I thought it just really drove the story ter- terrifically. Yeah, it's a great plot point. In, in many ways, you use that for a lot of your plot points. Yeah. Uh, and I think plotting is, is certainly one of your strong points in this book. Uh, so I'd like you to talk about a book that's um, conceived based on character and an exploration of Wyatt Hunt's character. And this is a great exploration. It's really, really interesting to see this revealed. And that provides, it's a novel of revelation where we, as we right. find out stuff, it's interesting. But I'd like you to just talk about how much of this novel, did you plot this out in advance or did you did this flow off the tip of your pen? It Well, <laughs> Well, it came off the tip of my pen more than out of the plotting in advance. I did hand in a a serious outline, probably a 12 to 15 page outline that 
talked about the general arc of the book. But, you know, in writing these books, it's all about the details. And the details are what becomes the plot. Mm. And you're dealing with, you know, like all kinds of new, I, th- I thought, very new people, new and interesting situations. You know, some murders that happened long ago in the past. You had to have witnesses to them. And, and as you start writing about these people, they start to, in, in my the way it works for me, is the creativity happens in the writing. And I'm, I get people on the page and they start interacting and then suddenly I'm seeing connections that I didn't see at the outline stage or even see parts of. Now, uh, it's interesting that uh, Wyatt uh, Hunt started out as a child protective services investigator. Right. And that he ends up having to use his own skills and his own background to investigate himself. Was this all planned on purpose somewhere back in the depths of time? Uh, You know... I, I wish I could say, yes, I saw all this three books ago when I thought of them. But really, I have a good friend in New York named Andy Jalakis, who uh, was a child protective services guy. When I was trying to think of a new younger guy five years ago, uh, I talked to Andy and he said, you know, well, what I did was pretty interesting. You know, I took kids away from abusive parents for 30 years in, in Brooklyn. And I went, oh, my God. So he gave me a couple of books to read. And I said, yeah, this is the background I want this guy to have. But that's as far as it went. And I think it's it's very interesting to go back now when suddenly it's it's very clear that Wyatt has these feelings of abandonment and loss and, you know, stuff that he has never dealt with. And getting to have this kind of masculine hero figure into that, you know, fuzzier realm was really challenging. I, I think that's actually the thing that really sealed the deal for me with this novel was that we have a guy who who is, you know, he's a man of action. Yeah. He's a detective. He leads this agency. But uh, as he gets these messages revealing um, his past to him and making him question his past, right. he really becomes undone. And so I'd like you to talk about uh, creating the characters of his parents and his the parents that he knows, mm-hmm. and then going back in time and retrofitting him with all the stuff that happened back in the 70s. It, That's... Was, it was fascinating. Really, it was fascinating. Because I come from the, the family that he grew up with. Mm-hmm. Six kids in it, you know, a bunch of bunch of loudness, as I, as my reading demonstrated. Uh, lots of, you know, really kind of casual, fun stuff. Still good friends with all my family members. And then to have Hunt come from that environment and then have to fit in what happened during his first three years, all of which he's repressed. He doesn't even basically remember it. He just does not go there. And to have him kind of get wedged into that headspace, I found to be uh, just totally compelling. I mean, it just opened up a whole box full of interesting psychological reactions that he had to deal with. And I thought you did a great job with this. How much of the psychology of adoptees who go back and find their birth parents did you have to study to evoke that? Did you talk to people? I talked to several people. Uh, one of my other good friends is a, has, has got two adopted daughters, and I talked to both of them about it. And they were adopted at birth even, mm-hmm. and both of them have had huge problems with – I mean, even though the, the people who adopted them are great people and they've, they've grown up to be great kids, but they've both had – major psychological issues that they had to confront and deal with in terms of abandonment and, and the, the, the whole thing about being left by your birth parents. It's just a huge deal. And, and I, I've talked to probably six or eight other people that have been through the experience and they came from different levels. One 
One, interestingly enough, there was a guy who was actually given up for foster care while he was still with his parents. Mm -hmm. His parents couldn't afford it. It was back in the early 50s, and they just they had to give him up, and they they put him in a foster home for a year and a half. Really? And he was he's the one who got me thinking about the, you know, he said, nobody talks about the amount of abandonment you feel, but you are just devastated in a way that is not like devastated by, a, an, a you know, an original trauma that you see coming and you get it. This is something that's so fundamental that you're being abandoned by your parents that it just, it takes you apart inside. Now, as you know, you clearly have not had that experience. No. So I'd like you to talk about putting yourself in that headspace um, of somebody experiencing that and uh, talk about there's, of course, a mis- mystery complication mm-hmm. to what he discovers about his parents. Right. And, uh, and that reaches forward into the current day. So this is a very complicated plot you've set up. It was. <laughs> with, with a, with that uh, hinges on some really interesting characterization revelations as well. That's yep. a, this novel is a very uh, intricately conceived machine. Well, thank you. Um, it was not easy to write. I will tell you. I mean, some novels I just go whistling down the road and feel great. You know, do 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 do. Here's another scene. Uh, this novel, every day, especially maybe at the two thirds point of the novel when he was finding his father and getting closer to his father, I literally my I had sympathetic migraines every day, mm-hmm. and I, you know that's not fun. But I just I, I wrote through them. But really, because when Wyatt was going through all this migraine and what he called the light show, you know, I was having the same thing. Really? And, yeah, <laughs> and it was really not as fun as it might sound. Uh, no. I mean, I think identifying your char- with your character is a good thing, but you know, you can take it to extremes. And in this case, it was just so hard to pull this out and to to deal with the, um, you know, to try to make my man of action really be uh, kind of a heroically themed person as well as mm-hmm. an acting person, and I wanted him to have this this internal struggle that he had to overcome to become his best self. That's one of the things I think that you do particularly well is that we have this guy who's a man of action. He's young. He's debonair. He's punted one girl. Another one's coming on the scene. I mean, he's a guy who's got a lot of stuff going for him. But he, the emotional issues and the way he confronts me doesn't deal with it very well. And no. I think that's what's really... That it you, scared me as a writer because, uh-huh. you know, we're always trying to find that sweet spot between commercialism and, and reality. And, and, you know, you want your books to sell and you want people to like them. And I knew that, you know, I was doing stuff here that was... Um, dangerous from mm-hmm. a commercial standpoint. I mean, I don't like to read books that are downers, you know, and I don't think this book is a downer, but I think that probably owes as much to the prose as to the, what's going on in the book. Mm-hmm. So that's why I tried to make the prose uh, conspicuously light, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, It's pro- very conversational. I didn't, I didn't explain much. I just do stuff, you mm-hmm. know, and, and tried to make the the word's fun to read. There's a lot of wordplay in the book. There's a lot of good dialogue. There's a lot of people, you know, who are fun to just hang with. That's, you know, there's a, there's an important part of this book and uh, that I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, that there's no person or scene or place you go in this book that you don't look forward to it. You look forward good. to all the parts, and I think that that's really integral. Even... Um, as as Wyatt discovers, you know the tragic past of his mother, right? And um, 
the you know what has happened to his father and even as he himself breaks down and and becomes not you know he's not he's not doing what he's supposed to do well he's not doing a very good job at it right right well the other thing that happens is the surprise i think i mean i'm not going to spoil anything i'm not going to say it but the surprise of how he relates to his father and that that scene when they finally get together and other things start appearing if i mm-hmm. if i'm not giving away too much I mean, I I still can't read that without crying. Mm-hmm. That scene just wrecks me. It, it's really well handled. Now, one of the things I think we can talk about yeah. is there's a very interesting San Francisco. You know, this your books <clears throat> grow out of San Francisco, and I love the sense of geography, the clarity. You talk about your prose. It's, you know, I don't think you described it as light, and I would say it's more. I, the word I would use is transparent. And and you talked about showing, not telling. Mm-hmm. There's no telling at all ever in this book. Great. You just show us stuff. Yeah. And I, I love that um, when you, you talked about uh, his, you know, he sees the lights, he feels the pains, but you don't really dwell on migraines. I mean, it's left kind of for the reader to figure that. I think right. that's really a, a, a smart thing to do. Well, I hope it works. It, it felt like it worked, but I've and I've had a couple of people who have suffered migraines who have already read this book, even though it's only been out a day or two. But I've actually had two or three people email me already, saying you just nailed the migraine thing, mm-hmm. you know. And I think especially for people who've had it, they really know what it's like, and I know what it's like because uh, you know I had a not just did I have these sympathetic migraines, but I had spinal meningitis when I was forty-one, mm. and I was in a coma for eleven days. And Jeez. when I came out of the coma, I had a migraine that lasted one year. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> So I got the migraine thing pretty good. <laughs> and I wasn't happy to see it reappear for this book, but, uh, you know, it went away when I finished. So that's good. Well, that's interesting that it uh, – so it was a result, I guess, of the emotional trauma of trying to put together this book. Yeah, it was. And I got to say, the, the, the decision to make Wyatt the person that, I've, that he is now – uh, really is a little bit risky in the, you know, the mystery business part, the commercial side of it, mm-hmm. because everybody wants an identifiable guy who's exactly the same as he was the last book, mm-hmm. except different. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and the way you choose to make him different, you know, is, is sometimes you put him in different situations. I think that's what Jack Reacher does so well with the Lee Child character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, I didn't. I wasn't satisfied with the character yet. He mm-hmm. wasn't done. I had to figure out who he was, and, and he had to figure it out. Well, uh, one of the things that, that the bits of San Francisco history that you harken back to is uh, the Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre. Yeah. A- and it's interesting because it's been so long since that happened, and I, I wasn't very old when that happened. Right. So it didn't strike me. But as we read it now, that was an enormously – that was extremely – Extremely frightening. I mean, it's actually frightening. It was that's another thing. It was actually frightening to write, because I don't know if you remember, but last year there was a there was a memorial made to Jonestown in Oakland, and I think Jones's adoptive son isn't that ironic, <laughs> uh, or you know, uh, filed a petition in court. And it was it was all over the newspapers here, so it was it's still a very live, you know. Uh, event, I think, in in the memories of people who lived in this area, and you know, it was a brutal, horrible event. I mean, it was way bigger than even in my memory of it. it I figured, I, I thought it was something like a hundred people, but in fact, nine hundred and fourteen people died there in one day. 
That's just, it's really uh, kind of mind-boggling when we think about it in terms yeah. of, you know, the number uh, 9-11, I mean, and all these kind of events, that that crops up there, even though it's a kind of off-site and out of sight and out of mind yeah, yeah. to a degree. Now, one of the things I think you do very well with this is to reach back into his past, which is something I knew even less about. Mm-hmm. So talk about doing the research for that. Well, it's funny. I... Number one, the good part about it is I lived through that. I mean, I was, you know, old enough to be conscious in the 70s and, mm-hmm. and kind of remember, I think, very clearly what it was like back then. But in terms of Wyatt, in terms of his parents, I love those people, poor young people living here in the decade of, you know, free love and everything else. And the way that it was hard for them and the way that they had this friend, E.V.C. Christ, who was a Jesus freak and was taking a lot of acid. And, you know, those kind of characters from the my old days at Berkeley and even here at USF uh, were just really compelling to write about. I mean, it was very it wasn't like doing research. I, I kind of knew the stuff and just tapped tapped my knowledge. It was great. But you went further back, too, into Joan's time in Indiana. Yes. and that was that, so fun. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, the guy had to start somewhere. And, mm-hmm. and, and imag- it was amazing to me when, he, when I found out he started in Indiana because uh, I'd been looking for also a way to get out of San Francisco with these stories to kind of broaden the appeal and mm-hmm. get, him, get him out in the whole world. Um, and so Indianapolis was a perfect foil for that. And then I went back there and did a bunch of research. I actually went to the Costco Center to sign 4,000 books last year, <laughs> and it was in Indianapolis. So mm-hmm. I, I flew into Minneapolis, which is one of my favorite scenes in the book when Hardy goes to, I mean, when Hunt goes to the bar in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And then he takes another, you know, puddle jumper flight to Indianapolis, and, and he, he, the, the city is so different than San Francisco, I mean, in, in every possible way. And I think it comes across as a very Midwestern, friendly different kind of town. I think that's why, you know, that's that's true. And I think part of that is, again, getting back to what we talked about earlier, the transparency of the prose, that um, it's like when you're building out of Lego or something, you can, you can build Star Wars out of Lego right. or you can build Castlevania out of Lego. Right. Or, or, right. And you can, with the, your prose, you can give us uh, a crystal clear San Francisco and you can also give us uh, Indiana. Yeah. To say nothing of maybe... Foreign countries. Yeah, foreign countries. (laughs) As you were uh, constructing this and putting this together, one of my things that uh, I realized was that um, with uh, this is has a lot of really nice as a police procedural detective procedural. This Mm -hmm. has a lot of great procedural points, and uh, I love your you know the detectives helpers particularly particularly. uh, Callie Lucente, who, yeah. who you've uh, given us uh, a, a little bit about her inspiration. Yeah. Well, you got to have other people in these books. You mm-hmm. just can't have it be, I can't have it be from one point of view the whole way through. To me, that's just, I mean, I love those kinds of mysteries and I love those writers who can do it, but that's not me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make me feel like I'm creating a whole world. And I like to, I like that sense that I'm creating a whole world. And part of the, the scene, if you're going to write crime, is that you have to have police people involved. And, you know, experts and people who know stuff and, you know, the connections between when Jules starts to see some kind of a conspiracy thing that must have gone on back in the 70s. And the thing that's cool, you asked about how much of my plot I know. I knew no part of that part. And that's one of the things I love that scene where Jules starts to 
you know, where I, I like that about this book is that the characters behave realistically. Yeah, it's they, big. You got to have them be realistic. <laughs> but it, but it's not common. No. And, and so I'm kind of expecting them to go one way, but he goes the other. And I think that's really, that's one of the things that makes the book so enjoyable. Well, you know, you got to have surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was one of the one of the old time writers, was it Anthony Trollope? He used to write on index card size things. And he, his, his goal was to make something that pleased a reader in on every index card. And, you know, I've tried to remember that, uh, you know, as much as you're trying to tell these stories, you're also trying to keep people entertained and, and reading and enjoying it. And one of those things, I love that whiplash effect where, you know, Jewel all of a sudden is coming from one direction and, and it's like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. And you go, yeah, that 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 is what happened. You know, and it keeps me a step ahead, I think, of the reader, you know, and, and makes it pleasurable to catch up and go, I see what you're doing. Yeah, and two... Um, even though we live in the information age now, I think one of the things that this book uh, makes clear is that in- information itself, just knowing something, that could be really exciting. You don't need to have action. I mean, no. to a degree, there's there's there are some great set pieces in this book, uh-huh. but this isn't a book that features a lot of high-speed chases and such. I mean, the stuff that happens in here that's exciting is, is information. It's when they get that thing that turns the key, all of a sudden, it's going, oh my goodness, this is going to, and it opens up this whole, I think, what it does is it, re- it gets your endorphins going. I mm-hmm. mean, it really is a I mean, that's the one of the personal, I think, positives about the book is that personal connection where all of a sudden you're reading this and you're going, this is just too cool. Like, number one, I didn't know this could happen. Number two, did it happen? Number three, you know, what's going to happen next? I mean, it's got all kinds of, you know, kind of excitement going on, but not physical excitement. Right, right. And that's yeah. – now, it is – It's the thrill of the chase. Yeah. You know. <laughs> the hunt. Has the it hunt. <laughs> the hunt club. Now uh, – Two, uh, one of the things that we live in the information age where and a lot of uh, mysteries are, are tend to and TV shows especially tend to get kind of lazy where people will just Google stuff. Mm-hmm. And you point out the power of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and that there's a lot of paper trails out there and you can find stuff. In there's, there. uh, you know, I mean, Hunt discovers, for example, the transcript to the trials of his father. And reading back about those trials and and finding witnesses and going through the paper chase is really very different than going on Google. Mm-hmm. And we even see the flaws that going to Google or going to LexisNexis have in in this story because they don't work. This is the the tools of Hunt's trade and they don't work. Mm. He's got to go to the CPS hard copy files. You know, he's got to go to the trial transcripts. He's got to go to physical stuff that, you know, we don't normally think of as part of the research, you know, um, research mode anymore. We all, we automatically go to a computer and go, "This has got to be the answer." Right, and, and but that also brings up uh, Lexus Nexus, which has been eclipsed by Google, but in huge, some ways, but not so huge much. Huge search tool. People who don't know this is one of the other things. I talked to five private eyes, mm-hmm. that, you know, in the course of writing this book, and. I, because I was saying, you know, I was having this concern about, well, would you really, if you're a private eye, wouldn't you just go to Google and look for trial transcripts? They went, no. You know, or wouldn't you find property records? No. I said, you can find them, but you can't find them on a non proprietary machine. And a proprietary machine is going to be a LexisNexis machine. It's not going to be Google. So 
I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that I had no idea of when I started writing this and, and, and getting this from not just, and I was skeptical when I, you know, got the first message on this. And then I got talked to five other guys and four, four guys and a woman, in fact, and, uh, all of them said the same thing. They said, no, we usually use Nexus Lexus and it's usually through some law firm that has the proprietary rights to it, you know, and the cops have it in their, you know, they have it at their disposal if they want sometimes. Now, uh, uh, for for all the the you know the great character development that we have here and, and you know the kind of the the interaction between uh, Hunt and Tamara, um, you also do give us a, a few really great set pieces mm-hmm. and, and, and I love those set pieces. So I'd like you to just talk about as a writer blocking those out because they're so clear. When yeah. I read them, yeah, um, they read effortlessly, and it's just like better than seeing a movie. That's so great, thank <laughs> you. Um, you know, you, you, I know when I'm doing it right. It's when those pages they write themselves. They, they, you know, in contrast to the the long hours of migraines waiting to get through some of the personal issues. When I'm having, you know, like the conclusion of the book, the mm-hmm. actual denouement. Uh, it just wrote itself. All of the pieces I realized were there. And then you re- once you realize that, you just go, you, it just frees you up entirely. I thought it was just totally cool the way Hunt used a phone. I mean, after the phone had been <laughs> the whole, you know, the whole mover of the book. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he's he realizes what's happening at the end and, and finally gets to the solution by triangulating with a phone and doing things that had been happening with phones throughout the whole book. I just thought it was magic when that happened. So, I mean, that's the way those kind of things develop. And then you have, you know, you bring all the people show up at the same time at the, where they need to be. And that's, it's like a ballet, you know, and if you make it, if you make it work right, it's totally believable. In fact, it couldn't happen any other way. And it's just a blast to write. Now, this is, uh, um, a part of this book is uh, set in in the place where Hunt lives, yeah, which is kind of like uh, oh, looking great. inside his his mind in a way. I love that. Yeah, Did that's you... it's one of the fun things. I I'm a big fan of a, another writer named T. Jefferson Parker. Oh yeah, I've talked with him. He's he's I great. I love Jeff. In fact, I'm going to be signing with him next week in Phoenix and in Houston. We're doing a his his book, The Jaguar, comes out on Monday. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we're good buddies, but but I, I truly admire him as an artist. And one of the things he did in one of his earlier books is he had his hero live in like a cliff <laughs> in, in Laguna. I mean, mm-hmm. it was kind of weird. He was a surfer and he lived in a cliff and it was a dugout cave. And I'm going, what a cool thing. And I said, you know, that's, a, that's just such a neat idea. I'm going to borrow that and give Wyatt a cool place to live that kind of says who he is. And so I put him in an old deserted, you know, flower shop warehouse right by the Hall of Justice, you know, with a big tall ceiling and a half a basketball court in there and, you know, amps and guitars and computers. And then the other side of the house is a kind of a neat, high tech, beautifully designed thing that he did himself. Now, one of the things that I like about this book is that you talked about earlier about building a world, and I really like that. I get the sense that this book is part of your bigger world. We meet, you know, I think, uh, I know, um, and not Dismas, 
uh, Abe Glitzky. Glitzky kind mm-hmm. of is on the periphery of this. Yeah. So I'd like you to just talk about kind of creating this bigger world and kind of, you know, fitting these little pieces together. That must be fun. It's really fun. Uh, it, it was not really planned. It just became one of the things that started happening when I wrote The Hunt Club. I had Hardy basically be the first guy who recommends that Hunt become a private eye after he's been with CPS and after he's got, a you know, another life entirely going on. Dismas Hardy... He works for one of Hardy's associates, Hunt does, does, mm-hmm. a, does a job. And she goes, well, you did that so well, you know, you should meet my boss. He wants to talk to you. And Hardy basically says, you ought to become a private eye. And that's what happens. And these people then start kind of floating all over one another they, because it's, in, it's a small town. You know, we live in a small city. And people overlap. And to have my, my characters all show up and then get to know one another and interact with one another, sometimes not not nicely, uh, just really to me is part of that verisimilitude that I like to uh, try to tap into. Now, where do you where are you going next? I'm writing another Dismas Hardy book. I'm going back to a full fledged Dismas Hardy trial novel. So we're, now, for the trial novels, do you spend a lot of time in court just to keep your? Uh, I have already done a lot of that. I mean, <laughs> I've done what I think about. I think probably 10 or 11 real courtroom books. And I'm fortunate enough to be friends with several lawyers here in town, a couple of cops. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very familiar with how it kind of works. Now, when do you prep yourself for each novel, like reimmerse? It's hard. It's hard. This one, was, this one really was so uh, personal that I'm having a little trouble tapping into the Hardy ethic, which mm-hmm. is different than the Hunt ethic. And the Glitzky, the Glitzky guy, he's good because he, I, I have access to his emotions a little better. But Hardy, I'm trying to find right now, and he's not showing up as much as I'd like him to. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen. It's one of the, I'd like to say one of the fascinating, interesting things, but it's really terrifying. <laughs> well, what it is, no doubt, is a mystery, which is... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Quite appropriate. I've been speaking with John Lesquois. His latest book is The Hunter. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you. It's been great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.